0: Oh, I need to log in? Son of a monkey's uncle. Jack, what's my password? Hurry up, we gotta get service started. What? Two-factor authentication? Uh, I can't believe this is happening. We gotta get service started. Why do I need to wait? I'm already logged in. Am I human? Pick the cute kittens? Uh, all right, this one, this one, and this one. Finally. Okay, we can start. Well, good morning, New Day. Good morning. Thanks so much for being with us today in person and online as we continue our current teaching series called Christ the King, where we're studying the gospel according to Matthew. Our text today is Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 34. And what we see in these verses are miracles of sight and sound, which were two of the authenticating miracles of Messiah. Speaking of authentication, when two-factor authentication came into play, and started becoming mainstream, I was so annoyed. Anybody else? I didn't understand it, and I was just annoyed by it. Well, just this past week or so, I actually learned why that came into play and what it's for, and now I have a new appreciation for it. Let me explain. Here's the way that it used to work. Hackers would get into your email account, and then they would go ahead and try to get in touch with local banks. And then they would tell that bank that, you know, hey, I'm this person, and I've just forgot my password. And so they would send a new link to the email account so a new password could be set, and that's what the hacker would use to set the new password. And now the hacker would have the email uh, and your password, and they would get into your account, and they would begin draining your funds. Now, developers said, we've got to do something about this. And that's where two-factor authentication came into play. So nowadays, the hackers could have your email address, and they could have your password, but they're still not going to be able to get access into your account. And here's why. Two-factor authentication requires not just something you know, but additionally, it requires something you have which is usually a mobile device. And so even if they have your email and your password, they still can't get into your account because they don't have your phone. And so now they are locked out. And now that I know that, now I'm not as annoyed when I have to type in six-digit code in order to get into my account that I've already entered my email and my password for, Okay, So again, now I have a little bit more of an appreciation for Two factor authentication. And what's really interesting to me is that these multi billion dollar companies have concluded that only two sources of authentication are needed to confirm someone's identity. Now, as it relates to our sermon today, what I want you to understand is that God the Father created a simple two-factor authentication of His own to help us confirm the identity of Messiah so that we would know that it's Him when He came. If you're taking notes today, the greatest promise in all the Old Testament Was that God was going to send a Savior into the world to save mankind from the penalty His law demands for sin, which is death. And not wanting us to miss the Savior when He came, God told us a lot about Him in advance so that when He came, we would recognize Him. Through the scriptures, God said, in effect, don't you worry about missing Messiah when he comes. You're not going to miss him. And the reason you're not going to miss him is twofold. You're not going to miss him, number one, because he'll be the one fulfilling specific prophecies. And friends, this is the first factor of authentication, the Savior would be the one fulfilling specific prophecies. Now, scholars have different estimates concerning how many different prophecies Jesus fulfilled during his earthly ministry. Uh, on the high end, 574, kind of mid-range, 456. And then the super conservative number is that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, fulfilled at least 300 prophecies. Now, I'm going to give you several examples. We can't cover all 300 because we would literally be here till 8 or 9 o'clock tonight. But I will give you five for this purpose. I just want you to see how specific these prophecies are. All right, this is not like the 800 numbers you call up the psychic and they, you know, mention, you know, like something you could find in a fortune cookie that would apply to everybody. These were very specific prophecies that Messiah fulfilled. All right, five examples. Number one, uh, God told us in advance about the Savior's ancestry. God said, I'm going to send a Savior into the world, and, and here's what I want you to know about, about him. He'll descend from a man named Abraham, then he'll come down through the line of Isaac, one of Abraham's uh, offspring. Then he'll come down through the line of Judah, one of Isaac's offspring, and then he'll come down through the line of King David. Very specific, right? Number two, God told us in advance about the Savior's birth. He said his birth is not going to come as the result of passion uh, or planning. Uh, his uh, arrival on the earth is going to be not natural. It's going to be supernatural. He will be born of the virgin. That's Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Number three, God told us in advance about the Savior's birthplace. God said, now let me tell you where this Savior is going to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. But that wasn't specific enough for God. God knew that there were several Bethlehems throughout the land of Israel. So God said, not just any Bethlehem, but the Bethlehem located in Judea, which was the southern portion of the nation of Israel. Number four, God told us in advance that when Messiah came, a herald would precede his arrival. God told us that a voice would come crying, prepare the way of the Lord. And God not only told us that a herald would come, God told us what the herald would be like. He said a herald will come in the spirit of the prophet Elijah. In other words, he will be like the prophet Elijah. And that's exactly how John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. God said, my herald will serve as my voice, my messenger, my prophet, telling everyone that the time of the Savior has finally come. And finally, number five, God told us in advance that his Messiah, his Savior, his Savior King that he promised to send into the world would come as a light to illuminate for all the way by which they might be saved. But God didn't want us confused concerning where this light would primarily shine. And so God told us uh, in the Old Testament, in in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, that his light would come shining in the Galilee of the Gentiles, in the area known in the Old Testament as Naphtali and Zebulun, the land located in the northern part of Israel, which was located between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. That's pretty specific, right? It's not general, couldn't be interpreted 80 different ways. God said, let me give you the latitude and the longitude of exactly where he'll spend most of his life ministering as a light to illuminate for all the way by which they might be saved. And friends, it goes on like this. As we keep studying through Matthew's gospel, we're going to see prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. So far, we've covered just five. There's many more to come. Uh, Hang with us in the months and years to come. We'll get through them all. But the point is this. We would not miss Messiah when he came because he would be the one fulfilling specific prophecies, conservatively over 300 of them. Okay, Number one, God has said, you will not have to worry about missing Messiah because he will be the one fulfilling specific prophecies. But let me give you a second reason why you don't need to worry about missing Messiah when he comes. You don't have to worry about being confused. Is this the one who will save me from my sins or not? You don't have to worry about that. Because not only will he be the one fulfilling specific prophecies, number two, he will also be the one performing specific miracles. And friends, this is the second factor of authentication. The Savior would be the one performing specific miracles. Now, do you guys know that God the Father set aside certain miracles of healing specifically for Messiah to perform when he came? Did you know that? In the Old Testament, God the Father performed a number of miracles of healing, for example, he healed a couple women of their inability to conceive, He healed a couple lepers, he healed the sickness of Nebuchadnezzar and uh, excuse me of job and Hezekiah, and then he healed Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. So God did a number of miracles of healing. they were few and far between, but they did take place. but God intentionally limited himself in what kinds of miracles of healing he would perform because he was saving certain miracles of healing just for Messiah so that people would recognize him when he came. You say, Mike, which ones were reserved specifically for Messiah? Well, friends, in the Old Testament, do you know that we have zero examples of God healing uh, the blind and making them see in the Old Testament? Zero examples of that. We also have zero examples of God making the lame walk. We have zero examples of God making the deaf hear. We have zero examples of God making the mute sing for joy. But here's the deal. Though these miracles had never been done in all of human history, God told us in advance that when Messiah came, take a look, he says, then when Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then when Messiah comes, shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So friends, when Messiah came, he would come fulfilling certain prophecies. He would come performing certain miracles. Now, if you've been paying attention, as we've studied now through... we're, we're wrapping up nine chapters of Matthew today. As we've been studying through the beginning part of Matthew's gospel, what we've seen is Jesus fulfilling some, not all, but some of the specific prophecies that Messiah was supposed to uh, fulfill when he came. I mean descending from Abraham, descending from David, being born of the Virgin, being born in Bethlehem, growing up in Nazareth, ministering in Galilee, serving as a light to illuminate for all the way by which they might be saved. Jesus has fulfilled some of the prophecies, but he has not yet fulfilled all of them. He will as we keep going through the gospel, but thus far he has not yet fulfilled all the prophecies. Likewise, as we've studied through just nine chapters of Matthew's gospel now, we have seen Jesus perform some, not all, but some of the specific miracles that Messiah was supposed to perform when he came. For example, God said that when Messiah comes, he'll make the lame leap like a deer. And friends, we've seen that, right? Have we not seen two examples of that just in Matthew 8 and 9? I mean, in Matthew 8, A Roman centurion came to Jesus asking him to heal his servant who was lying paralyzed at home, and Jesus healed him. Likewise, in Matthew 9, Jesus proved that he had authority on earth to forgive sin by healing yet another paralytic. So Jesus has made the lame leap like a deer, and you better believe that's exactly what these people were doing once they were healed, but he has not yet made the blind see. And he has not yet made the deaf hear or made the mute sing for joy, which were all things he must do if indeed he was Messiah. And I mention this because that's exactly what we're going to see in our text today. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 34, we see Jesus perform. Two specific miracles that God told us in advance that Messiah would perform when he came. If you're taking notes, the first thing we see is a miracle of sight. A miracle of sight. And we see this in verses 27 to 31. I'm going to read it to you, but let me just say this. Normally we read this little section of scripture and we just kind of, we just kind of brush right over it as if it's not incredibly significant to verifying Jesus' identity as Messiah. So let me read it to you as I think God wants us to see it, okay? And as Jesus passed on from there there refers to Jairus' house. Remember last week, Jesus healed Jairus' daughter. She was dead and Jesus resurrected her from life. And and where our story picks up today, Jesus is leaving Jairus' house. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, "'Have mercy on us, son of David!' When he entered the house, Jesus was heading to Peter's mother-in-law's house. And when he finally got there and entered the house, these blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Let me just make a couple comments on this. When they came to Jesus saying, have mercy on us, that's the equivalent of saying, Jesus, please help us. And they believed that Jesus could help them because of who they believed Jesus to be. Friends, they didn't just say, have mercy on us. They approached Jesus saying, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, just so you know, son of David was the most popular title the Jews used for the promised Messiah that God said would come into the world. And they referred to Jesus as the Messiah by calling him the son of David. Now, these guys clearly knew their Bibles. They knew what miracles Messiah would perform when he came. And they knew that he wouldn't only make the lame walk, something that Jesus had just done twice right in that region of uh, Capernaum. They also knew that Messiah, when he came, would open the eyes of the blind. So they knew, hey, this guy Jesus, he's doing things that have never been done throughout our history, that have never been done in the history of the world. He's made the lame walk. He's got to be the one. He's got to be Messiah. He is the son of David. And they knew the son of David wouldn't just make the lame walk. He would also make the blind see. So they tracked Jesus down there in Capernaum, which wasn't hard at all to do. And when they arrived, Jesus was inside Jairus' house. So they waited outside until Jesus came out. And when he did, let me tell you, they made such a racket. The Greek word used here is krazo. And just so you know, the kind of racket they were making, that's used in Revelation chapter 12, verse 2, to describe a woman screaming in her labor pains. So that's why when I read it, I said it so loud. Have mercy on us, son of David! That wasn't even close to how they were doing it. They were screaming it even more intensely than that. And they just followed Jesus, screaming the entire way, all the way from Jairus' house back to Peter's mother-in-law's house. They know that Jesus can heal them, and they are desperate for him to do so. Once Jesus arrived at Peter's mother-in-law's house, he apparently invited them in. And inside the house, he performed the specific miracle that God said the Savior King would perform. He gave sight to the blind, something that had never been done before. Now, curiously, Jesus strictly forbids them to tell anyone what he had done. In in the words used here, this is not a a friendly reminder, this is a strict warning. Jesus did not want them sharing who he was as evidenced by the miracle he performed. And I get it, this is so confusing because when we get to Matthew 28, we have the great commission, go and tell everyone. But now what we see up until Matthew 28 is what we could call the great restriction. Jesus continually telling people, tell no one who I am. And that's confusing, right? But friends, here's the deal. I began to introduce this concept to you last week. This week I'll expand upon it, but here's the deal. Jesus was trying to prevent a premature death Uh, at the hands of the Romans, or a premature death at the hands of the Jews, for that matter. If everyone went around saying, Jesus is the Messiah, what that meant in that day, because of people's misunderstanding concerning the role of Messiah when he came, what that meant to those who heard was this, Jesus is the one who will be the political and military ruler who will overthrow Rome from occupying the land of Israel. And friends, that would have got Jesus a premature death. Jesus didn't mind dying. He was born to die for the sins of the world. And he was willing to die when the time came. But he did not want to die prematurely uh, apart from God's timetable. Had Jesus died prematurely, then number one, he wouldn't have fulfilled the prophecies he was supposed to fulfill. He hasn't ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey yet. He hasn't been betrayed by a close friend yet. He hasn't suffered for the sins of others, uh, dying a substitutionary death on the cross yet, nor has he resurrected from the grave yet. So if Jesus was put to death prematurely, there are prophecies that needed to be fulfilled that wouldn't have been. Number two, had Jesus died prematurely, then there were certain miracles that would not have been performed that Messiah needed to perform to confirm his identity. Number three, if he had died prematurely, then um, the disciples would have gone um, uh, sharing an incomplete gospel. Jesus didn't want them going out saying who he was until he had died on the cross and resurrected from the grave. Because had he sent them out prematurely, they would have gone out to proclaim an incomplete gospel. And finally, number four, had he died prematurely, we would have had untrained disciples. Jesus needed all three and a half years with them to shape them and mold them to become the church leaders that he had intended. And for these four reasons, Jesus, not not in a friendly way, but strictly forbade them not to tell what he had done because what he had done would have revealed who he was and that could, could have put Jesus to death before God's appointed time, before the disciples were trained, before all the prophecies were fulfilled. But try as he might, And despite the stern warning, what did the two blind men do? They went away and spread his fame through all that district, which put Jesus's life in grave danger from both the religious leaders and the Romans. So Jesus helps them out. And in return, what do they do for Jesus? They put his life in great risk. That's what everybody did. It's so messed up. But that's what everybody did to Jesus. He would help them, they would put his life in jeopardy. So that's a little explanation of why Jesus was always telling people, tell no one. But the main part of this section of our text today, I'm trying to draw your attention to this. Messiah was the one who was to open the eyes of the blind, and that's exactly what we see him doing. Here now is the second thing we see in our text. After Matthew covers a miracle of sight, he next covers a miracle of sound. And we see this in verses 32 to 34. Again, so easy to just read it over, gloss right over it, think no big deal, and move on to whatever's next. But don't do that. Here we go. Let me read it to you. As they were going away, as the blind men were now leaving Peter's mother-in-law's house, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. And friends, that's because no one in Israel had ever seen the blind receive their sight or the deaf Uh, Here or the mute sing for joy. Verse 34, but the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. And again, I'll just mention a couple short things here. The Greek word for mute is kophos. And this word often includes the idea of deafness because the inability to speak is usually uh, connected to the inability to hear. In the New Testament, kophos is sometimes translated mute and is sometimes translated as deaf as it is in Matthew chapter 11, verse 5. So you see, the word is used interchangeably because being mute is usually the result of being deaf. So what I believe we have here then is a man who is mute because he is deaf. It's just a given that he's deaf because he is mute. So let's revisit what God said Messiah would do when he came. God told us that when the Savior came, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And friends, this is exactly what happened, which is why... When John's disciples came to Jesus asking him whether or not he was the Messiah, he could answer as follows. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And what's that last part say? And the deaf hear. So our miracle takes place in chapter 9 and only two chapters later in chapter 11, Jesus references this incident confirming that this man was healed of both his inability to hear and speak. Let me summarize. God told us in advance that when Messiah came, he would fulfill specific prophecies and perform specific miracles. And in our text today, Jesus checks two more miracles off the list that Messiah was supposed to perform. He made the blind see, he made the deaf hear thus making it even more clear than he already had who he really was. Friends, don't be confused. Though Jesus had to do it in a a way that wasn't overt, Jesus 100% was declaring to all who he really was. He wanted people to know. He just couldn't go saying it overtly because that would have resulted in his premature death. So Jesus just let his actions speak for him. And in performing all the miracles that God told us in advance that Messiah would perform when he came, Jesus was declaring through his actions who he really was. He just made it so clear. Now, friends, today as we wrap up chapter 9, we wrap up the first of five major discourses in Matthew's gospel. And the gospel writer Matthew has made some notes for us to show us how people responded to Jesus after he fulfilled specific prophecies and after he performed specific miracles. In our text today, we actually see three specific responses to Jesus, and these were basically the three different ways in which people responded to the evidence for Jesus being God's promised Savior King. Let's look at the three ways people responded to Jesus. Number one, if you're still taking notes, some people decided for Jesus. And we see this first of the three responses um, in the way that the two blind men uh, responded to Jesus. They saw the evidence that he was healing the lame and making them walk. And they said only God could do this. And they concluded that Jesus was the Messiah. So they readily and publicly and loudly confessed their belief to everyone, calling Jesus the son of David. So some people saw the evidence and they decided for Jesus. I wish everyone responded that way, but that's just how some responded to Jesus. Number two, while some decided for Jesus, uh, we learned from our text today that others were undecided about Jesus and we see this response from the crowds when Jesus made the deaf hear the crowds marveled saying never was anything like this seen in Israel but friends just because they marveled at what Jesus had done doesn't mean they made a decision for or against Jesus At this stage of Jesus's ministry, the crowd does not represent all who are sold out in discipleship. The crowd represents those who are following him, listening to his teaching, enjoying his show. They're they're interested, but they have not yet made the same confession that the two blind men made, having concluded that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the son of David. These are just the crowd. They're they're the undecided. They're interested, but they haven't made a decision one way or the other. So some people decided for Jesus. Some were undecided about Jesus. And now thirdly, we see some decided against Jesus. And this is why Matthew included the response of the Pharisees, because we see this third decision that many made, not just the Pharisees, but many of the people as well. Some decided against Jesus. Jesus came saying, could my identity be any more clear? I'm fulfilling the prophecies. I'm performing the miracles. I'm doing things that only God can do by demonstrating power uh, over disease and over nature and over demons and over sin. And and I even have demonstrated my power over death. I mean, uh, he couldn't have made it more clear who he was. Yet some decided against Jesus like the Pharisees. The Pharisees saw all this. They heard the reports. They witnessed things themselves. And here was their conclusion. Oh, Jesus, oh, let me tell you about Jesus. He cast out demons by the prince of demons, which is like idiocy. This is a name. This is absolute drivel. It's utter nonsense. Their theory is that Jesus is in cahoots with Satan, who ostensibly is giving Jesus power to undo the work of the demons who work for Satan. But friends, when you have a vested interest in rejecting the truth, you'll come up with some pretty ridiculous ways by which you go about rejecting that truth. This is what people do. They did it back then, they do it today. But all this to say, there were some who decided against Jesus. To apply the text to our lives today, I wanna ask you this question. Which camp do you find yourself in today? For everyone here in person, maybe you just want to go ahead and answer that in your heart. For those of you who are joining us online, uh, if you would be so bold, maybe you want to go ahead and type your response um, into the little text chat there. But I want everyone answering, however you do it, which camp are you in today? Are you decided for Jesus? Are you undecided? Or have you decided against Jesus? Where are you at today? Hopefully now you know where you're at. And for everyone, regardless of where you're at, I want to give you one practical next step today. Number one, if you've decided in favor of Jesus, then your next step is to follow him in discipleship. Friends, understand this. Many people look at the evidence and and they're not idiots. And so they basically say, "Uh, Jesus made it pretty darn clear. Uh, I do believe that he is who he claimed to be, he is the Messiah. I mean, who else could fulfill all the prophecies and perform all the miracles and, and demonstrate the same power that God had in the Old Testament in numerous ways? I mean, it's just so obvious. So I declare, as the blind men did, Jesus is the son of David. And hey, that's a great first step. But you know what? For those who make such a confession, Jesus now expects the people who make that confession to follow him in discipleship. And that is the very thing that many people do not do. This is why Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Some will recognize that Jesus is Lord, that he is the son of David, that he is God's promised Messiah, the savior king who would save us from sin and make us citizens in his eternal kingdom. But then having made the conclusion Jesus is Lord, they don't follow him in discipleship. They don't crack open their Bible every day to study the scriptures, to see what God's will is as revealed in his word. And they fail to adopt Christian morals, Christian values, Christian worldviews. They don't talk how Jesus uh, likely would have talked. They don't raise their kids in keeping with the scriptures. They don't manage their money uh, in keeping with the scriptures. And on and on the list goes. Their life doesn't reflect the claim of their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Oh, he's Lord, he's ruler, he's king. Oh, he just doesn't rule and be king over me. He doesn't exercise uh, authority or dominion or or sovereignty over my life. No, 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 I just kind of do whatever I want. Oh, but he's Messiah, he's Messiah. So friends, your next step, if you decided for Jesus, it's simple. Begin following him in discipleship. That's your next step. Number two, if you're undecided about Jesus, then your next step is simply this, keep coming. For those of you online, keep tuning in. For those of you uh, attending in person, keep attending in person so that you can learn more about Jesus. I get it, it's a serious commitment and you don't wanna make the decision before counting the cost. So just keep coming and keep learning. With that said, do make sure that you aren't putting off the decision even though you already have all the information you need to make one. But so long as you aren't doing that, your next step is to just keep coming and keep learning as to count the cost before making a decision one way or the other. Okay, finally, number three. If you've decided against Jesus, and let none of us be so, na- so naive as to think that there are those that there aren't those here who have decided against Jesus. We're glad you're here. But if you've decided against Jesus, your next step is to reconsider. I I, I beg you today, please reconsider. Here's why. You might not view it this way, but here's the deal. You have sinned against a holy God in rebellion against his will as revealed in his word. Friends, it's sin. And there's only one penalty for sin, which is death. For sin, we die physically and then suffer eternally apart from Jesus. And friends, because I love you, I need you to know today, if you've decided against Jesus, that's the trajectory that you're on. You stand condemned and you're headed towards an eternity in hell. And I mention that because I love you. And because God certainly doesn't want you to have that terrible fate especially when he has provided Jesus as the way by which you can escape such a fate. But you've got to call on Jesus, trusting him to forgive you of your sins, and then you've got to follow him in discipleship. Jesus saves those who make him Savior and Lord. And I would just beg you today to reconsider if you've decided against Jesus. You can decide against gravity to your own peril. And you can do the same with Jesus. So I ask you today, won't you reconsider? Why pay the penalty for sin when Jesus has already paid the penalty for you? Whichever camp you're in today, decided for, undecided, or decided against, I want to invite everybody, regardless of the camp you're in, to join me in our closing prayer. So whether you're tuning in online or here in person, would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? And maybe you'd say something along these lines to God in your heart. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for making the identity of Jesus unmistakable so that I could have confidence that I'm trusting the right person to save me from the penalty for sin. I believe that Jesus is the promised Savior because he and he alone fulfilled the specific prophecies and performed the specific miracles. So today I'm trusting in him to spare me from the fierce sentence of death that my sins absolutely deserve. But God, though I deserve death for rebelling against you, I give you praise today for providing a way of escape. And I acknowledge that Jesus, the son of David, is that way. Your word tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So today I'm trusting in him to forgive my sins and provide me with eternal life. And between now and that time where I enter into glory, I pray that you would help me to follow Jesus in discipleship. I'm not asking today that he simply be savior. I'm also appointing him as Lord of my life. I thank you for forgiveness of sins. I thank you for eternal life. And I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. We would love to connect with you even more. So be sure to like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to find us on the Church Center app for more information about all things New Day. May God bless you, and we hope to see you again soon.